you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Sure. My name is Thomas Fulmer. Yeah, the E is the E is silent there. <laughs> okay. And you work as a curator as well as currently a director of educational programming for a what it seems to be is a private institution. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a private collection that has a kind of public presence. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of these places are kind of cropping up around the world these days. So we have a kind of public life. And I always say the shortest way to describe us is as a private museum. So we sort of look and act and function a lot like a museum, do a little bit of everything that a museum does, um, if not more, but we are owned and run by the Rachowski family, Cindy and Howard Rachowski. Okay. I just want to throw it down. I love the fact that they have this collection and are willing to put it out into the public because there's a lot of art, really amazing art in the world that is behind closed doors in private collections that are sort of never seen. So the fact that they're willing to put it out and basically fund it as well, it seems like is spectacular, huge, yeah. huge fan. Yeah. And we, you know, we have this big building that we're now called the warehouse. We've been in there about 10 years and, you know, we have about 18,000 square feet of exhibition space, which is quite a bit. And, you know, a staff of six people. And it's amazing. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it really is this sort of incredible thing to work for. I mean, it's just, it's just exciting, especially with the international scope of their collection. So, I mean, how did that all get started? So I did a little background on the collection itself and how they got started. But so they've got their house, which is in and of itself a work of art. And then they also expanded into this warehouse. So why the additional space? Yeah. So I'll kind of give you the timeline here. And then if you want me to make it longer, I'm happy to. But Howard Ruchowski in the 90s, early 90s, hired Richard Meyer to design this, you know, very beautiful modern house for him. This, you know, very typically, you know, kind of minimalist vocabulary, Richard Meyer house. And he moved into that house in fall of 96. He was single at the time. He lived there for a few years and then married his wife, Cindy, and they moved out. She has two children. So they actually didn't live in that Richard Meyer house for quite a while. And that house was really the public face of the collection. That was sort of our public life was in their private home, the Rachowski house. So that was really where we were until 2011, 2012. Their children were older. They wanted to move back into the house. And then also Howard was just looking for a space that initially could be used as storage. So he, you know, his collection was growing. He was basically sort of renting storage and thought, well, why don't I own some storage space that I have more access to my own collection and, and some other opportunities that that space might offer. So he bought this building, which we now call the warehouse, and it was originally designed to be storage only. Storage with maybe sort of an open storage concept. I don't know if you remember, but at the time, this sort of open storage idea was popular. Like you, the works would be in storage, but somewhat on view or like at the Broad in LA, when you walk up the stairs, you can kind of look through this window into storage. So for a while, it seemed like everybody wanted this kind of hybrid space where the work wasn't totally locked away and bolted up in a crate, but also didn't have to take up the kind of public space of exhibition gallery. You know, it could sort of be the best of both worlds. So I'm not sure that's really played out. But anyway, that was originally the idea. And then the whole thing kind of snowballed into being a true exhibition space. So we do have true, you know, exhibition galleries, offices, and then we do have storage at the back. That's sort of the short version of how the space element evolved. Okay. And then how about you? So like, what's your background? Like, so were your parents creative? Like, how did you even get into this type of an industry? You know, I think, I mean, just took high school art classes and just loved them. And my parents weren't into art, but they did. Like my dad was always building things. And my mom was, you know, there, there was an element of like, just a kind of making and building at home. And so I just ultimately took high school art classes and I had one aunt who took me to museums. She was really adamant about, you know, she was a teacher, so she had made worksheets for us. It wasn't wasn't the most fun, <laughs> you know, like even on a Saturday, I'd be doing worksheets at a museum. Um, I did have some early, early 
like absolutely mind blowing. I mean, I can remember them like at age eight or nine or 10, like mind blowing experiences in museums where it just, you know, it's, you have that moment where you think like you, you didn't know something was possible. And now, you know, it's possible when you're standing in front of a, like it was a Linda Bangless, I think, or an Alan Serrett piece, like, wow, this is a thing that exists in the world. Somebody can put this into the world and I can stand in front of it. So that was that early, like physical, psychological realization, I think. Oh, yeah. I grew up in Washington, D.C. So my mother was a tour guide at the Smithsonian. So like, I got, you know, all kinds of great access. I did my high school internship at the Natural History Museum. So like, yeah, it's so yeah. much fun. Yeah. Yeah. That was my first job out of grad school was actually working at the Natural History Museum in Pittsburgh. I went to Carnegie Mellon and I did web design work at the, you know, with all the design dinosaurs and insects. And so that was a whole other set of values. Uh, yeah, it was wild. It was it was so interesting. And so, you know, they're curators or scientists, you know, they're actually doing research as well. Yeah, I know. I had to like refill formaldehyde in, in the old jars. That was one of my tasks, but <laughs> <laughs> not a very clean or ethical test the thing these days, I guess. But, you know. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. so so then you went on. So what did you get your degree in? Because I saw you went to Carnegie Mellon and I'm always because part of what I'm interested in also is like, how do people get into careers like the career you ended up in? Basically, I'm assuming you're sort of at your career goal at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my undergrad and grad degrees are in studio art. So I went to University of Dallas for undergrad, which is a small private school here in Dallas. And then for grad school, I went to Carnegie Mellon, I got my MFA. And I think, you know, like any art student, you have to organize your own shows. So I sort of love making the work, but also love the stepping back and organizing and all of the problem solving and this kind of scrappiness of, you know, dealing with city codes and also PR, but also sort of pulling the ideas together. So, you know, in school, I just I started doing some internships when I was in undergrad and grad school and education or kind of public program type stuff, but still organizing the, my own shows at times and then also the shows of other people. The two are always sort of there side by side, you know, sometimes one more than the other. I love, I think even as a kid, I was like organizing plays and taking my swing set apart in the backyard and rebuilding it into a stage set. Like I've always loved taking everything apart, bringing all the parts together is, is always just, you know, I think you, if you love that, it's excruciating. And then when it's over, you have a weird void of depression because you, you've been focused on it for so long. But it's uh, some friends of mine who do the same thing recently were like, yeah, we have an addiction to this kind of horrible thing for organizing shows. It is. I mean, I've organized shows. I've organized fairs. I've done all kinds of these kinds of things. And like, it takes a lot out of you. And then there is that sort of post-event depression that sort of kicks in because you've been so high and so amped about trying to make sure you're remembering every little nuanced detail of everything that has happened. And then suddenly you have to remember nothing. Like, yeah. You, you got, you, there's this huge yeah. void in your life of like, yeah. I need something else to fixate on. Yeah. Exactly. And you've been having conversations in your head about it for months. And then you realize most people are going to walk in for 30 minutes and leave. So there's a little part of you that's like, all these imaginary, you know, people that I thought I was going to have these conversations with are, you know, coming in and enjoying it, but it's not the thing they're going to focus on 24 hours a day, like you've, like you've been. So well, I think you're being very generous with 30 minutes, <laughs> even. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a big space. But I think you're still being generous with 30 minutes, unfortunately, <laughs> these days. Yeah. Yeah. So now at the warehouse, are you currently in the role of doing curatorial works? Or because I saw assistant curator. So I'm sort of interested like, is an assistant curator an assistant to a curator? Or is they sort of their own thing? They're just not like the highest in the office. 
So it kind of depends on the season and the cycle. So my, when I started out, it was doing the education work, but we did a few small shows at university galleries. Howard Rachowski's very adamant, you know, like he's not precious and stingy about loaning things. He wants the work to be on view. So we did a, a small show at three local university galleries over the course of three or four years, you know, just the kind of wonderful little galleries that universities have, which by the way, I think some of those spaces are doing, you know, some of the most interesting, strange, daring shows in any city, I wish they got more attention. I wish that they were more accessible. But so there was always a little bit of that. And then when I did a show a couple of years ago with the curator at the Nasher Sculpture Center, Lee Arnold, we proposed this idea to Howard. And that was when the title change came about because it just, it wasn't my full-time high-level job, but it definitely was the best description for what I was doing. Like I was doing a curatorial project, but then Howard's art advisor, Alan Schwartzman, who he's worked with since 97, you know, up until four or five years ago, it had done all of the installations at the Rachowski house and then all of the exhibitions at the warehouse until we started having guest curators do them because he already sort of had that title. It was just a way to acknowledge, you know, the title to match the work, but also not just be a, you know, broad general title, more practical, functional than anything. Okay. I've got like all kinds of questions because curators, I, I love them, but on the other hand, I'm terrified of them equally as much because I'm also a practicing artist myself. So like on the one hand, they're magnificent because they're the gatekeepers that could, you know, uh, show your work to a collector or put your work in an exhibition or whatever as a, as a practicing artist. But in the same way, I'm terrified because I seem to always put my foot in my mouth every time I talk to one and like get it all screwed up. You know, like either I'm too friendly or I'm too professional and I never get it seem to get it right. So how should artists sort of utilize a curator well? Hmm. You know, I think there's, I mean, this is going to be maybe start out as a cop-out answer, but hopefully it doesn't end up that way. So I think that there are obviously different types of curators. And a lot of curators are honestly kind of nerdy researchers who like the research aspect a lot. And maybe that's why they got into it. And maybe are not as excited about the actual installation and maybe the relationship and the sort of living, dynamic, breathing aspect of putting a show together and installing, which is a whole other dynamic, lived you know, it, just way of thinking about the body too. I mean, just, you know, the, the, the putting art in space is a body project. It's not a research project. You know, I think that, first of all, it depends on the type of curator, because I think that sometimes the curators that are intimidating are actually just sort of nerdy research types. And they're also equally intimidated by artists. I mean, you know, I had kind of the flipped role on this show that I just did, where I was working with artists as the curator. And I have a sensitivity as an artist to the, you know, wanting to let the artists have the authority and respect them, but also, you know, just sort of negotiating some of the concerns. But I think a lot of curators are also, you know, there is a social aspect now to being a curator. There is a sort of fundraising, there is a socializing, not just social, but a socializing aspect to being a curator. So I think sometimes they're just frankly worn out from all the socializing and they really just want to be looking at art and researching art. You know, there's probably an element that's like, is this really just an introvert that like wound up in a, in a job where they have to socialize a lot? When I was in high school, you know, those like aptitude tests that you're given, like says like what careers would be good for you. My aptitude back said I was, should be either a mortician or an art curator. <laughs> Somehow those are the same personality traits. Don't know why. You know, that, that's actually not, you know, like they both, they both work with dead objects. They both work with fragile objects. They both work with things that need to be preserved and somehow not preserved. They both work alone generally. Yeah. Yeah, the list could go on and on. There is a sort of, you know, reverence for the like essential values of human existence, right? You know, like life and death and preservation and values. I don't know. I think that's a, uh, I'm not sure that test was really testing for that. <laughs> it was probably more like, can you be around other people 
and do you and are you good with fragile things? You know, like yeah, are you, do you work well in groups? You know, do you like meetings? Like no, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. No. Okay, wait, I want to ask because I love the nature of installing exhibitions. Like this is one of my like personal fetishes because I used to study with curators and stuff when I was in college and I absolutely loved hearing all the different dynamics and ideas and even like the architectural layout of things like how you place works like in relation to the space itself in relation to like doorways and like how they're going to be seen together the the quality of light that's that's being cast on them even down to like I I'm always love like the texture of the paint like do you use a flat paint on a wall or is like an eggshell better or like is there some sort of industry standards for all of these different ideas because i mean i know lighting does have some industry standards because you don't want to put too much light because then you could damage the the art depending on the, the material that's being used are there other things that you sort of like have a, a fetishized about about like making sure this happens or that happens when you install exhibitions yeah, I think that um, the lighting thing, not so much, but that's because I work in a place that has actually three light sources. Uh, we have skylights, spotlights, and, you know, so we can tweak it to be, look as, you know, I mean, it, it, so I don't, I don't know. That's not something I fetishize. I think I just want it to look great and not look too dramatic, you know, because you don't want it to look like a theater set. I'm a photographer. I'm all about lighting. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I just want it to be even and not distracting. The thing that I really, I, I guess, fetishize or just really, really respect when a curator does it and that I, you know, to do whether it comes off or not is for like what i said earlier like you should install for the body not for the mind i think that we've all i'm always hesitant to say anything too negative or cynical these days but you know i think we've all been to exhibitions that look like a catalog come to life it looks like the curator's focus was producing an incredible catalog and then the show is almost like the pop-up book version of the catalog you know it's almost like the show sprung forth from the catalog rather than the show being for the body you know like the, the show should really be for a body moving through space and some of these kind of kind of slightly goofier, quirkier things I actually learned from Howard's um, art advisor, Alan Schwartzman, when he used to install the Richard Meyer house, because he was really interested in, you know, sort of sight lines and doorways. And he very rarely centered something on a wall. And that's one of the things that I always lament. You don't have to center everything on a wall. You know, like that's not actually the best. That's not really the way the b a body moves through space. You know, a body doesn't typically walk into the middle of a room, stand in front of the wall and freeze. One of the things that I've thought about, you know, for this show and then with the last show I did with Lee Arnold is that the, the body should be more of a um, pinball machine, like a ball that sort of, you know, bounces and moves around in these sort of interesting either viewpoints or works of art. So, you know, a small thing off center on a wall, there, there should be a sort of dynamism to the way that you move through the space and to think of areas of stillness versus areas of activity. So even one of the simple things that I've done is just draw lines to block off doorways so that you know you think about like that's ultimately a path of movement so if you're going to block it you have to be thoughtful about that but i always really respect curators who just install for the body you know like where i feel like there's a reason for my body to be there there's a reason my body came to this space there's a reason that i made the effort to bring my whole physical self into the space to have this experience and not just sort of like a you know a book or a catalog that's come to life in the space yeah, I mean, I studied with Walter Hopps, also from Texas, and, and he used to talk about like looking through multiple rooms and how it's not about like each piece of art looks good in its individual room, but like when you're looking down a hallway, they should all relate to each other, even if they're in different rooms kind of thing. So like, it's not even just like installing for your space and your room, but you also want to create a, an engagement and some sort of fluidity and conversation between the works, even even throughout the rooms and, and through those sight lines you were talking about. 
Yeah. And also there, there's a, an awareness of scale and like, to, you know, when you walk through the space, it should sort of inhale and exhale. You know, there should be a sort of, if you're confronting a room where everything's the same size or scale, then, you know, then, then that's a little numbing and work cancels itself out. Or, you know, if you're in a room with a bunch of small things, then you should walk into the next room and maybe it should open up and, you know, there should be a, a breath and a rhythm to these things. And also just an awareness of scale is so interesting. I feel like that's one of those ideas that for 20 or so years, I knew intellectually what scale was, but I didn't really, my body didn't know what scale was in a space, you know, the way that your body moves through space and has a relationship to other objects. So it's just an awareness and something like, yeah, I had the realization like, oh, my mind knew what that was, but my body didn't know what that was. And so, you know, I'm interested in like that learning process of like, okay, what happens? How does the, how is my body learning about scale as you move through space? Well, I mean, when it comes to like certain artworks, the the scale is a very important thing, not only because of the work itself, but because you also need to make sure to have enough distance because like, for my personal opinion, like every piece of work has like the right distance to view it. Like sometimes it's very close, sometimes it's very far away. Whenever you put a piece of art in a space, you have to like take into consideration how much space, how much distance does a person need to actually view it at sort of its optimal quality. And sometimes people, a lot of curators don't take that into consideration and they put other works in the way of where the person needs to be standing to view another work. Yeah. Years ago, I had this, again, like I said, I'm hesitant to put anything negative out into the world these days. There's enough of it. But but what I did have this, you know, dark fantasy of doing for a couple hours one day is starting a Instagram account called Crimes Against Sculpture, where, you know, it was like badly installed sculpture, you know, like things, sculpture stuck in the corner, stuck in the, you know. Just all these like, like a crime against sculpture, the way it was installed. To a certain extent, part of this podcast is kind of like learning from uh, mistakes, you know, either our own mistakes or other people's mistakes, because God knows most of what I talk about is things that I did wrong in my career. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, it's totally fine to, to talk about something negative as long as we take something positive out of the, out of the a negative experience, yeah, <laughs> a learning absolutely. experience. Absolutely. And give people the leeway to make mistakes too. Well, it's interesting because like that's a big thing, a topic that's been coming up a lot is the sense of like we can't fail anymore. Like just like you were just saying, like you're you're scared to even say negative things. Like, I mean, cancel culture, all these kinds of things. Like, I mean, it's really hard because if you put out a bad exhibition or you as a curator, you know, curate a horrible exhibition, like there's this horrible fear these days that is exponentially more anxiety driven than it ever was in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And installing a show is a one shot thing, right? I mean, you spend so much time and money and energy and, you know, part of the conversation these days is environmental resources. Like you've spent so much of all of those things putting this thing on view. You have to be able to take big risks too. And then, you know, and then that risk sits out there in space for months. <laughs> so your risk is on view. So. Well, these days it also stays on the internet forever. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's no past or future. No. Now, okay. So you were talking about like coordinating exhibitions though at the warehouse, which I'm assuming you do all your sort of curatorial work and your educational work at the warehouse, not that the home, correct? Correct. Yeah. We, they move back in the home. So it's just the warehouse now. Okay. So at the warehouse, let's say you're, somebody gives you a proposal. Okay. We, we want you to put together an exhibition. Well, how long is that timeline? Are you all doing it months in advance, years in advance, multiple years in advance? <laughs> It depends. I mean, I think max, it's been two years. It's generally, I mean, this, because of COVID, the show had two years of planning and other shows have had a couple of years, but we've done a few a year out. Um, we used to do one show a year, basically, that was up for 10 months or so. And then 
Now we're going to start cycling, which was great to actually just get to live with it and slow down. But now we're going to sort of ramp that up and do two cycles a year. So we'll do, we have three shows up right now at a time. So there'll be, you know, really more like one to two shows up at a time twice a year. And it kind of depends on the project, depends on the curator, depends on how far out we're really thinking. So. All right. And then how, like when you're approaching the idea, so let's say somebody says, okay, Hey, we have an open slot two years from now. How do you start that idea of like, okay, let's put together an exhibition of, and I'm going to, I'll even make it relevant to what's up right now for you. Sound. Like, how mm-hmm. do you come up with the, like out of all the potential topics that could be addressed in the entire world, you said, that's the one I want to do an exhibition about. Yeah, so I'll give you the general, then the specific. Generally, the uh, Howard and his advisor, the director of the collection, Alan Schwarzman, will identify someone that they, a curator that they know, like, trust, and that they want to give, you know, sort of a fresh take on the collection, which, you know, all of our exhibitions are sort of grounded in the Rotowski collection, but not, you know, solely that work where there's always loans that, that supplement the shows. And so then they'll, they'll basically just ask that person to propose a show. I mean, they, they really choose it more based on the person than the idea. So from my perspective, though, with the sound show, this is an idea I've been interested in for decades, uh, you know, to different degrees. And in the Murchowski collection are these two key early, early sound works. So I've always been interested in work that uses sound, but in more of a bodily sculptural way. These two key early works are um, Laurie Anderson's handphone table, which is this table where you put your elbows and the sound travels through the bones of your arm into your, you put your hands over your ears. So very, you know, very bodily notion of sound where your body is actually conducting and receiving sound. And then this work that's co-owned with the Dallas Museum of Art by Atsuko Tanaka, the Japanese Gutai artist called Untitled Bell from 1955. And it's this line of 12 bells that sort of go along the edge of the wall and it can go in different configurations into other rooms, out into space. And when you, when the visitor pushes the button, the bells ring in sequence, starting closest to you, and then they ring out, and then they come back to you. So it's very much like a line of sound in space. And uh, you know, for 1955, and just unbelievable. Like still to this day, it looks like the most radical, strange thing ever made. I mean, and to imagine that a, it is, you know, an artist in 1955 making this work, it's wild. It's like, where did this come from? It was just sort of born out of this incredible moment. So using those two sound works as the sort of grounding, I just, you know, presented the idea to Howard Rutowski and he said, yeah, let's go for it. Let's try it. So then it you know, involved a lot of other loans and works. I have to say, I'm very envious of what it sounds like, the way your sort of office and hierarchy runs, where it's just like, yeah, I just go over and I just pitch it. And yeah, they just say yes. Most museums and institutions, there are layers and layers of bureaucracy and red tape. And you can just pretty much be like, hey, how about this? Yeah, okay, let's do that. All right. Yeah, that's, we actually tell basically the story you just told a lot. So, you know, when you working for a private collector, is, you know, its own set of sort of interesting circumstances. This, I think this happens to be one of the best versions of it. I mean, if not the best. And Howard often talks about how sort of nimble we are and the fact that there is no bureaucracy. And he sort of laments when he has to deal with other larger institutions because of the bureaucracy. It's a trade-off. I mean, the trade-off is that we are incredibly nimble. We can make things happen at the drop of a hat. On the flip side of that, you know, sometimes I wish we had maybe 5% more bureaucracy so that we could, you know, have a little more planning and a little more structure built in. But yeah, we're spoiled. We are totally, totally spoiled to not have to go to a big meeting and present them to committee. I mean, it, literally, they'd be okay for that show. I mean, I, I worked for quite a while on the exhibition proposal and sort of laying things out so that when I went in and talked to him, it, it was concise and, and clear enough. But I mean, yeah, within about 20 minutes, it was like, okay, let's do it. Let's get it on the calendar. So, and, it, that, and you know, it, it was, yeah, it's, it's just it's just ridiculous. It's spoiled. 
So oh, I'm spoiled. Oh, yes, you are. Yes. I mean, because yeah. yeah. I, I know people that work at museums and like when they put out proposals, they have to, they also have to like put into consideration and how are we going to fund this project and what's the footfall and what diversity this quota is it matching and all the different factors that like go into, you know, just funding an institution and to be able to pull off these kinds of things, which I'm assuming, I don't know anything about your finances at the, at the warehouse, but I'm assuming basically that it, it's pretty much, you know, funded completely and you can sort of just do almost any project that the, the director sees fit. I mean, yeah, certainly within reason. I mean, we don't have a board. We're not a nonprofit. You know, there's certainly considerations and, you know, awarenesses that we try to have. And, you know, is this, is this worth it? And is this, you know, is this a thoughtful use of, of resources? But yeah, I mean, curators at museums, I mean, they, they have to wait three or four years to even get something on the calendar. And then even that's in motion. And then COVID and a loan falls through and, um, you know, the lender changes their mind and, you know, and, and it just, um, yeah, it's, you know. I had a conversation with a curator who they had been working on a project for like two years at a, a museum. And then at like two and a half years in, the director of the museum resigned and a new person came in. A new person was just like, nope, we're not doing that exhibition. So uh, two and a half years down the drain, just because oh basically a change in the hierarchy. Oh my God, I'll, I'll buy that person a drink, send me their email. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's, that, 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 that is soul crushing, you know, like you poured yourself, your, your time, I mean, you poured a chunk of your existence into this project and then have it just brushed aside. Yeah. That's just, oh yeah, yeah, that's soul crushing. Yeah. But uh, on sadly all too common in major institutions, but, but I'm specifically talking about one here in Czech Republic, which they're the head of the museums here changes with government. So like when oh. a liberal government comes in, they put their own person politically in the head of the museum versus if another political party comes in, they put their own director in charge of the museums. It's very interesting, very different than America. Wow. What, what is the, um, how are the museums funded? Is it mostly government funding? Yeah. Well, yeah, those, the, the particular museums I'm talking about are government funded. So yeah, they, and it, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's great that they're government funded because they pretty much know they're going to be funded and all that. But the fact that politics and the arts get intertwined, I find a, a little bit uh, questionable as an American. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have a history of the culture wars and all kinds of reasons when that blows up. Yeah. Oh gosh. Wow. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's pretty common still here in lots of Europe, the, that kind of the roles. But luckily, you don't live here. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a trade off. It is. Yes. I, I have no desire to be in America right now at uh, all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyways, back to the, the collection and everything. So is, is the collection still growing? I mean, so is this still, a, there's still things being purchased and, and so there are new sort of opportunities and such? Yeah, so the collection is very active. I mean, lots of acquisitions, some deaccessions. But it's, you know, I think right now the Rotovsky collection is about a thousand objects and it's, you know, an international collection. They yeah, work from all over the world, but with certain geographic focuses. So there are concentrations, you know, focuses of work from, it's all post-war work from Japan, Italy, and Korea. So the earliest was the Arte Povera work. So there, you know, early on, uh, the Rotovsky started acquiring Arte Povera and also kind of pre-Arte Povera work. And then also from Japan, Gutai, and Monoha, and then some other kind of, you know, smaller things. And then most recently, Korea. Oh, okay. I've got to ask, though, why those three specific countries? 
Uh, everybody asks that and there's not a great answer. And it's the answer that a lot of collectors give, which is that it was really organic. They were sort of following what they liked and it led them down some of these paths. So the more kind of structured version of that answer is that when Howard moved into the Richard Meyer house, into the Rachowski house, he met Alan Schwartzman, who became his advisor, who he still works with. And they really, Howard had been collecting, but it wasn't organized. There weren't sort of art historical or thematic goals to the way that he was acquiring work. It was really sort of what he liked. And there were great things, but it didn't have a, the kind of focus of a collection that had some you know, awareness of art historical and you know, material thematic themes, so to speak, and trends. So he and Alan spent a while, as I understand it, from what I've heard, early on really just looking and basically it was you know the idea was like let's not buy anything i want to say for even almost a year like let's just look and figure out what you're drawn to and because of the kind of minimalist you know vocabulary of the richard meyer house he started acquiring some american minimalist work you know that work that was in sort of dialogue with the house and that was a sort of language or a vocabulary that he was drawn to and then that ultimately just sort of organ organically led them to look at work and other you know what's going on in other countries at this time let's just sort of take a look and broaden, starting with this moment in time, look at work from other countries. And they started looking at work in Italy from 50s, 60s and onward. And I think also at the time, it was a great moment to acquire that work. There wasn't this you know, sort of crazy market for Artipova and pre-Artipova work. And so the Rotovskis acquired quite a bit of you know, some pretty incredible sort of key works from, you know, P uh, Manzoni, Fontana, Uri, and then some of the, some of the later, you know, some Artipova artists. So, and then I think that they were on a trip to Japan and saw this Shozo Shimamoto work maybe from 1950. He shows us as a guitar artist. And he early on, he kind of technically before Gutai, which started in 54, he made these whole works where he would pierce newspaper, like pierced things. And they were sort of had this like, well, that looks a lot like a Lucio Fontana pierced work, but you know, what's going on and why. And that, that again, that was just sort of that, like, well, let's start looking at this and learning about this. And that really led them into, you know, the, I mean, it, the Rachowski collection has, you know, one of the most incredible Gutai collections outside of Japan. It really is amazing. And some of that work is co-owned with the Dallas Museum of Art, too. So it's a sort of a joint project in some areas. Because that's one of the things that I wonder about, because I've spoken with collectors, and then I also know people that sort of collect more as a hobby kind of thing. When your collection seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger, you start having almost having to think about like it should have a theme it should have a commonality it should have a, a sort of an oeuvre that says like if you ever look at this collection you will understand the thread that leads you know go through the whole thing kind of stuff and and that's a tough one because i mean you could literally choose any artwork in the whole world to own if you wanted to so i'm sure there are some some outliers some things that he's the one of them either he or or his wife are, are like i just love this but it doesn't fit in the collection. <laughs> oh, a lot of that work. A lot of that work. Like, oh, this is just interesting. Let's see. I mean, Ian Howard always says, like, this may never end up in a museum. It may not belong in a museum. Let's just put it on the, you know, and he'll, I mean, he's, you know, certainly had moments where something's been on the wall after a few months and he's like, I don't know if that's really that interesting, you know, but, it, it, you know, it was just part of the exploration of those ideas. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of outliers, a lot of things that are just like, you know what, we just loved it and we just want to live with it and see what happens. You also mentioned de-acquisitions, and I'm, I'm always I was wondering, like, why would somebody buy a piece of art, potentially live with it, maybe even for decades, and then suddenly say, like, you know what, I'm not that interested. Is it the nature of, like, storage space, wall space? Is it the nature of, we want to sell this so we have some money to buy this better thing? You know, like, we want to, you know, buy something bigger, better, more prominent, sort of more of the time, or, you know, more of a masterwork of an artist. Like, what are some of the reasons for de-acquisitioning, and then theoretically you know, leveraging that into acquisitions. 
Well, I mean, everything you just said, you know, some of it is really just, frankly, you need the resources to acquire something new, your taste of change, you realize that you have a, you know, great example of something, and there's a better example that you suddenly are able to acquire. And also just, I mean, there's just an evolution of interest, too, I think, you know, like that was interesting to us at this point, but now maybe it's time to let it go. And I mean, it's very different than working in a museum. And, you know, there are all kinds of awarenesses and sensitivities that you have, because of course, museums can't sell anything, which, at the end of the day, I mean, protects culture and, and, and prevents museums from becoming you know, commercial transactional enterprises and all the horrible examples we've heard of where museums are selling paintings to pay the water bill. But there are museums that are challenging that a little bit, you know, like, can we get rid of two of these works that could go to another institution or a private collector and allow us to diversify the collection um, or just acquire something better? So the biggest example, and Howard's talked about, Rutowski talked about this, is he owned a big Jeff Koons piece called Balloon Flower, one of the big balloon sculpture, you know, um, and he sold that work. So that he owned it, I think, for nine or 10 years and then sold it so that he could acquire some other works and pretty instantly acquired, you know, five or six pretty incredible works that were not in the collection. And because the Rachovskis, as well as two other collections in town, the Rose, D.D. Rose, and also the Hoffman collection, is pretty common knowledge. So I'll say this fast, but they announced, I think in 2004 or five, that they would give their collections to the Dallas Museum of Art. So they are also thinking about collecting as a civic activity. You know, these are three private collections that will ultimately go to the Dallas Museum of Art. So collecting is a civic activity, but it's also a joint activity. So there is the sense that, you know, why would I own a great example of a work by this artist if one of these other collectors of the Dallas Museum of Art already owns it? If we're trying to build this as a group, then I'll let, you know, let's let that one stay and I'll sell this work so that I can bring another artist or a movement or something that doesn't exist in this Dallas collection. There's a kind of a strategy to sort of thinking as a group and being aware of like how to diversify and not have, you know, two of basically the same thing when you could bring in an artist that no one in Dallas owns. Okay, wait, uh, just to clarify, because I think you did say that a little fast. So you're saying that the, 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 the Rakowski, I'm so bad pronunciation. That's okay. I've heard every uh, version of that name. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Are working with other collectors and then they plan on sort of donating the estate to the museum at some point in the future. Yeah. So when these three, there's three collections, the Wachowskis, the Rose and the Hoffman collection. And when they, they have, they all announced that when they pass away, they will give their modern and contemporary collections to the Dallas Museum of Art. This strategy of working together, they're all friends, first of all. So it's not like a sit down and have a meeting with a big Excel chart. I think it's more just turns out that Marguerite Hoffman actually owns a great, you know, whatever Donald Judd stack, or I don't know what. So, you know, maybe we'll de-access that and bring in this work by an Italian artist. So it's not every single acquisition is not that strategic, but there's definitely an awareness of, you know, this group of people that are working towards the same goal and the fact that collecting is a civic activity. You know, it, it has this sort of bigger goal outside of their lifetime. Well, just to be clear, like, I think that's magnificent, like, because a lot of us non- I don't know, affluent enough to have our own art collection kind of people, which is pretty much everybody else other than yeah. very few people. We don't realize these people know each other. They talk to each other. They work together on projects, things like this. Like, it's nice to hear that there's a, I mean, for lack of a better way of explaining it, like a cunning plan to this whole thing, rather than it just being like, I'm doing whatever I want to do because I'm rich kind of an idea. But they actually have some thought and some planning and civic responsibility, like you're saying, which is really very nice to hear because like a lot of the stuff we hear in the news is always people throwing around tens of millions of dollars and, and you know nobody caring about this and that and kind of stuff. So it's nice to hear that these kinds of people are, are caring and they are thinking about the future and they are working together instead of just being these sort of monoliths, uh, the sort of just only caring about their own collections and their own interest. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there, there have been other museum directors from other cities in the US, I think a few in Europe, actually, that have brought their 
collecting groups to Dallas. And, you know, I always want Howard and Rachofsky to talk about that. You know, how does that work? You know, what is it like to function in that way? What is it like for a private collector to jointly acquire work with the museum? So, you know, again, that Tanaka Bell's piece I just mentioned, the, the collection line is the Dallas Museum of Art and the Rachofsky collection. So how can these, you know, institutions... I hate to say leverage their relationship with these collectors, but you know, work with collectors, combine resources, combine contacts, combine interests, combine you know their passion for this thing in such a way that it benefits the city, the collection of this museum. So it's interesting. And I have to say that the three collectors that I mentioned are very curious people. They're not collecting showpieces. I mean, they certainly have their you know whatever blue chip marquee, whatever like artists that are well known. But there's a lot of weird tough stuff that all three of these people are bought. Like Marguerite Hoffman has bought some incredible, intense, you know, kind of historical feminist work that is like a lot of museums would be afraid of, or, you know, they buy, but not really show. And one of the most highly, you know, quantity wise collected artists in the Rachofsky collection is this Japanese artist, Jiro Takamatsu. Very conceptual in a lot of cases. It's not flashy work. Like this is not crowd pleasing work. It's conceptual. Sometimes it's a little dry. I mean, it's Anyway, so I, I sort of love the, like, you're, you're not getting a lot of flashy, I'm not going to name names, artists, you know, like, you're not, you're not getting lots of bright, big, bright colors, you know, all, at all, all the time. <laughs> Jeff Koons, Damien Hurst, I gotcha. Yeah, Murakami, yeah, you know, um, yeah. stuff like that. I mean, which is great, but I mean, these are not, these are not like trophy hunter kind of activity. I think it's magnificent. As I said, like all too often throughout history, it's more like, you know, private collections just put it into their private homes and people don't see them and stuff. So like, I love that not only are they putting it in the public, but then they're also working together collaboratively with these other institutions and things like this and have already got like basically an estate plan to say that they will then donate all this stuff. I think it's magnificent. The stuff that I start thinking about is I'm like, okay, if you buy something with a museum who pays for what? Like, so who, like, let's say it was a 50 50 purchase, then who pays for storage? Who pays for archiving it and processing? Like, I start thinking about that kind of stuff. Like, if they're both buying it, is it stored at the warehouse or is it stored at the museum? Um, it depends. It depends on, it depends on the work, depending on the complexity of the, you know, if it's a small painting, that's not such a big conversation, but if it's a larger, you know, sculptural or installation based work, it just depends. Both entities are, have to be in communication and have to approve when something goes alone. And it just speaks to, good communication. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like just constant conversation about these things. And, you know, even in, you know, who's insuring it, where is it at any given point in time? Oh my God. Insurance. That's something nobody talks about in the art world. I've even tried to get some insurance art insurers on the podcast and and they refuse to come on. Oh, really? Wow. I wouldn't think it would be that. From what I hear, art insurance is not that expensive. I mean, you know, because it's not exactly a high risk thing in terms of it. You know, it's not like a car running down the street, but that's weird. I wonder why they wouldn't go. Come on, that's strange to me. Like, it didn't seem like they're that. Of all the areas of the art world, they seems like they would have the f- fewest secrets. <laughs> there's some. There's a lot of other. There's a lot of other secrets and unregulated and not discussed behavior. Which yes, the other the other one I cannot get on is is somebody from a free port. I really want to talk to somebody. Oh, from a oh free no, port. yeah. No, they've got secret. Yeah, that's understandable. They've got secrets. I, I love that, though. I mean, in some ways, it's not like I want to like expose secrets, but I'm just fascinated by the fact that there's this secrecy. Like that's mm-hmm. so interesting. I mean, I, I grew I grew up near the the CIA headquarters, so like I'm fascinated with secrets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plenty of them. You need to do an anonymous version of this podcast where I there's know. a voice modulator or something. I don't know. <laughs> 
I, I was thinking about offering that to some people to like just just to get them on because that would be so fascinating. But anyways, I doubt they'll ever agree to it. But uh, I'm sure I can get some like ex employee or something that would be willing to spill the beans on it. Oh yeah, yeah. Who's later on in their yeah? Who's just got nothing to lose? Nothing yeah. to lose. Ready to ready to vent. <laughs> just I'll get to that. I'll get to that point. <laughs> Oh, don't kid yourself. I mean, it, it, don't get me wrong. The free ports and all these kinds of things, I, I don't think they're necessarily bad or wrong or anything like that. It's just an unfortunate situation where I think there's like a lot of people are manipulating it for their own best interest. But the basic fundamental theory of them are actually really great. Like a free port originally just started as a way. So like if you're on a boat and you're going through a port to another port that you didn't have to pay taxes at the port, you just sort of like are refreshing your food and your supplies on your boat. That's a great idea. Like that's lovely. Like, but so I I don't have a problem with the concept of it, but I have a problem with some people sort of manipulating it. Yeah. Yeah. I will never get anybody on. I'll never get anybody from a free port because I'm sitting here telling you I have a problem with something. But anyways. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I actually appreciate your, I don't know, like the sort of balanced thought about that in the sense that like, I do get a little frustrated when people have this kind of idealism about the art world. Like, you know, the market is such an evil force in the art world and the market and capital, you know, it's like, well, the art world's never been independent from any market or patron or i mean you know at one point it was royalty and at one point it was the catholic church i mean in the western world and like you know the art world's never been pure the art world's never been free from all of the dominant or not dominant elements factors systems of society so i just you know there's that that sort of like cynicism about these forces and powers that you know that it's just not um yeah it's a little frustrating like this is not this not thoughtful or realistic well, it, it's sort of like it's it, it's a devil that exists, and I, I'd rather it be a devil I know than a devil I yeah. don't know. Yeah, exactly. All right, but moving on. So, like, you do also do educational programming. So, what aspect of the so, like, what are some of the things that you all are doing through the warehouse that are like educational? in nature. I mean, you brought up the university galleries, which I think is magnificent because I think university galleries are great and they're very underrated. But what else are you all doing to try sort of enhance it? Because one of the things that like a constant conversation that's had throughout the arts is, of course, the art patrons, let's say, are sort of aging out there and there's not getting younger people in. So like, how are you engaging that sort of younger crowd in, in the education of the arts? I always say we do a little bit of everything that a museum does, high school, age, and up. We don't have the younger kids because, you know, we're just not set up for it as a space logistically. And also the younger kids always go to bigger, more encyclopedic museums anyway, just as their first kind of museum experiences. You know, I don't know if we're strategic in the sense of like how we get one organized group or another in, but one of the things that we're conscious of is just sort of a personal touch. Like, you know, we're open you know, just a couple days a week now, but for the most part, when people come in, it's just their group, just that, you know, there's not other people running around. There's not a gift shop. There's not a restaurant. So the personal touch is really important to us. And just the idea that you always have a person with you, if you're there as a group to sort of facilitate the conversation and just to be present. And I think that's one of the things that we, you know, we're kind of known for and do well. You know, I think that just, you know, like when you come there, you meet someone, you have a personal contact. It's not a big anonymous institution. It's a sort of special experience. I mean, yeah, the older patrons are aging out. Younger patrons don't feel the same sense of obligation to just give money because you live in a city and if you have resources, this is what you do. They also, I was talking to somebody who worked in membership in a museum years ago and they also talked about this idea. This younger generation also just doesn't have the same amount of time to donate and they don't want to necessarily like show up to the museum to do things. You know, they don't want to necessarily show up and spend a whole day working on some project or event. It's a different sense of like, 
how much time you have, what you want to do. And then, you know, of course, how and why you give the money if you have it. It's just a very different awareness. And I don't have the solutions for that, but somebody's working on it. Somebody out there has got that gig. Yeah, I am not that person either. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I tried. I did a festival at one point, a sort of an affordable art festival that I organized for almost a decade that tried to basically expose people to less expensive art. So it was like $250 or less. Anybody can buy anything. Nothing in the, the entire fair was more than $250. The idea was to try and sort of instill the value of like appreciating original work so that over decades, as people have these things in their home, they'll start taking the excess income that they have in there. Like, oh, you know what? I really love that piece I bought for really inexpensively a decade ago and now I will really want to buy another piece by that same artist or of that same style or whatever because they've now been educated and they've appreciated a lot of it feels like it's sort of a, a long game like a lot of yeah. the arts industry across the board whether it's being an artist or being a collector or whatever it is it, it's never just a, a one-time thing it's decades of work and effort to, to grow whatever it is whether it's a collection or an artist's career in some ways that's great because it gives us time but on the other hand, it's really kind of annoying because we want it now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also your, this long game is coming, uh, I mean, a, a little bit at the end of like not a lot of art education in schools, you know, like depending on where somebody went to school. So it's a long game and you're also, you're trying to build a curiosity and build a set of values that for some but not all people hasn't been there. You know, it wasn't um, like when my aunt took me to that museum when I was a kid and just like had this sort of earth shattering moment. And it's also obviously about relationships too, like to have the time for these people to, you know, build relationships to other people in the art world or institutions and be sort of woven into the fabric of the way they think about the world, not just an isolated cultural experience. It is hard because there is still that barrier to entry, you know, that intimidation factor that comes with museums and, and even galleries. I've been in the industry for 25, 30 years now. And to a certain extent, there are still some places that I'm a little intimidated to go into because like, I'm yeah. like, I, I don't want to look like an idiot in this place <laughs> kind of thing. And it's hard. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The barrier. And, and it's a, you know, again, like I've, same. I've been I've been in this world now for I don't know almost twenty years, and it's still you know the the nuances of the way you ask certain questions and the way you're interested in things, and the you know it's strange and complicated, and it can be very 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 off putting. I mean, it really can be off putting to you know even people that are invested in it and are tough and aren't you know easily wounded by things. It's it can be very. I mean, I've had interactions with galleries as well where you know I mean I've been in this world. I've worked at this collection. You know I I'm not a novice all this and the the response has been totally off but you know just like you know they, they treated me like i just walked in off the street and i'd never looked at a piece of art before my entire life and i was like did you, did you not see my the tone of my email like i was fully respectful i was you know like i, I was it was very odd i mean it's like well all right i guess wow <laughs> Oh yeah, I always love the one whenever i go to new york and if i ever have to if i ask a price of a piece of art people are always like looking at me with like if you have to ask you can't afford it I know that is such a weird, I, that is, but that is the biggest barrier to entry for people. I think like not having to ask for the price that you don't have to do that in any other area of your life. And it really is. I mean, there is no other area of your life where, and you know, of course we all know why that exists because you know, the art world is about culture and not about just product. And there needs to be some, you know, people, some consciousness of what you're actually acquiring and your responsibility towards it. Like I, you know, I get why there aren't price tags on everything, but it, the system right now is very, 
aggravating and frustrating. And it is a big barrier to entry. And it is a very foreign thing because in no other area of your life do you have to reckon with that kind of negotiation or relationship. So it, it is, yeah, it's, it's such a turnoff to people. It really is. Oh, I know. Somebody brought up an example of like going to a grocery store and you find a thing of milk and you're like, oh, I love this thing of milk. Can I get it for 10% off? Yeah, (laughs) like we we don't get to negotiate for other things in our lives, but for some reason, the price of art is always negotiable. Why is that? Why can't you just put a price on it? That's the fucking price. You buy it, you don't. Yeah, and you also don't have to say like, I'm really interested in this milk. I'm going to take care of it. The refrigerator that I'm going to put it in is a solid 36 degrees. The power source is absolutely reliable. You know, the power never goes out in our house. I'm going to drink every drop of it. You know, I'm not going to put it in a cheap cake mix. You know, like, you know, just you don't have to, you know, prove yourself. But I'm obviously, I, I mean, I fully understand why we have to do that in the art world and why we should. I know. It's ridiculous. But anyways. Okay, wait. I do have a question, though. You have no gift shop? Why not? I love a gift shop. <laughs> I do, too. We just weren't set up for it. We just, uh, you know, we also, because we're privately owned, we're not set up to run any commercial anything. So every time you come there, it's free. You know, whenever we have our workshops for students and teachers, they're always free. And with the exception of one that workshop that we offer with other museums who charge for it. You know, whenever we have students come and there's art supplies and, you know, that we pay for all the students, you know, food and art supply, you know, we're not set up to have transactions like that. But yeah, I love it. Oh, God, yeah, that's but you know, when you get to take a little piece of something, part of the experience that leaves the space, everything else has to stay there. Like you want that little something that leaves with you. That's powerful. That's meaningful, right? Like even that one postcard, you know, that that is a, like, you get to leave, you know, like you get to take a piece of that with you. It's powerful. I agree 100%. Like, I mean, my favorite things to do after going through a whatever, a museum, a whatever kind of place is to go to the gift shop because I want to take part of that experience home with me. I want a tangible remembrance of either the work itself or the experience. You know, like I was recently just at the at the Louvre again and I was like, oh, I, so want, I just want to buy something to put in the house just to remind us of uh, the time we went here. Just mm-hmm. like little things. They don't have to be expensive. You should think about trying to figure out how to have a gift shop. <laughs> I know we should. I mean, yeah, we should even just a little postcard or something. What is the, what is the, like, I just think of that little, like glycine, that little paper envelope in Europe. Is it Flammarion? What is the name of the, it's like the name of all the, whoever makes all the postcards in the bookshops and uh, in the museum gift shops in Europe. And it's the same kind of semi-transparent envelope. The postcards come in and, you know, even the envelope is like, has this beautiful texture. (laughs) Oh, I know. I fetishize like it's really stupid. I'm I, I fetishize about the weirdest things. Like I buy my butter from a very particular company here in Prague, not because the butter's any better, but because I love the packaging of the butter. Yeah. It's it's in this the beautiful old like butcher paper, like nice uh, thick paper, and it's like folded over and hand done, and I'm like I just oh my love God. that process. It's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah, but the butter's the no ritual. better. Yes. It's the ritual ritual. of opening it and closing it. Yeah. Yes. Much like the ritual of going to a museum and then going to a gift shop. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I want to know about, because some of the pieces you all have, I looked through the, like the, the database that you all have online, which one thing that I actually really appreciated about like the warehouse itself is not only do you have like this amazing collection, you have made it public, but there's also images and information and everything able to be researched online. So like I can literally like look up a database of all the different stuff, which unfortunately most museums don't have, or if they do, you have to like get special permissions and usernames and passwords and 
and all this shit to get access to. The fact that you've done that as well, I think is, you know, amazing resource for people as well. I mean, we just redid the website a year or so ago and it's not the complete collection, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a good chunk of it. And certainly like, you know, at this point, most of the kind of important works, but yeah. Yeah. I think museums are getting better about that. The technology is such that they can actually just sync their private database and have sort of a public version of that, which is great. I mean, I think that slowly, slowly they're getting much better, but yeah. You know, we also, because we are kind of small and nimble, it's also just easier for us to think of the collection and storage as more like a library which is nice. You know, I mean, you can't just, obviously anybody can't just walk back there and yank a crate out. But I mean, we, we're, we've always tried to be much more sort of porous and open about if you are a student with, you know, a genuine research interest, you know, we'll walk you back to storage. And if we can look at it, we will. And if there's time and logistics permit, we'll, you know, pop up in the crate. And we've even done, you know, like for a high school class that was interested in feminist work or work that has sort of some connection to feminism, like, you know, we specifically have like open three works of art and storage just for this one high school class to go back and look at and and talk about for this visit. So it's really, I mean, that's, again, that's another benefit of being small and nimble and being careful, but not um, overly, um, I don't want to say overly precious. I mean, because some of that's just logistical and also just working in a big space. You can't have the entire staff walking back in storage all the time, but for us, we get to do that. It's kind of amazing. Well, I was going to say, like, theoretically, is the works in the collection sort of accessible to the public if they have like legitimate research interest in it? Yeah, absolutely. And we're always loaning work. Our storage is also so full. My coworkers who manage the the registrars rely on, I think, 15 to 20% of the collection being on loan all the time. Otherwise, it just, it all won't fit. Part of the lending is like that we want the work to be out there and to be studied and experienced. But also, it's, there's a sort of logistical, like, you know, it's great when something goes on loan because that opens up a pocket of space. So you will bought a warehouse and you have now outgrown the warehouse already. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, easily, easily. Yeah. <laughs> So he, he needs to buy the next warehouse expanded even farther. I, I think I just overheard that conversation actually recently. I think that, that I think I was walking down the hallway and definitely overheard someone mention that. So we'll see. I think it's great. I, I mean, I would much rather see this kind of adventure expanding than many other things that I could think of that could do such things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is fun. It was, I enjoyed it. Before you leave, we would like to thank you for listening all the way through the entire episode. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anybody with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community, not only today, but for the future, is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.